Okay, we're in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, and we started this chapter two weeks ago, and we should finish it tonight. But we'll read it in its entirety, and then we will um, pick up in verse 25. And these are the Jesus denouncing the scribes and Pharisees and pronouncing these woes of judgment upon them because of their many sins in uh, their rejection of Him. So Matthew 23, verse 1, says, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to His disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues, and respectful greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is, Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself, shall be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. <coughs> woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. <coughs> woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides! who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness." So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. And Lord, we do pray that you would instruct us tonight, Lord, and teach us to, Lord, avoid all hypocrisy and lawlessness, Lord, that we would not be mere professors of Christ who deny you by our words or by our deeds. But rather, Lord, we pray that both the inside of the cup and the outside 
Lord, that there would be cleanliness in both. Lord, both the inner man and the outer, and that there would be truth and sincerity in our profession and in the way that we live before you. So, Father, we pray for you to keep us, Lord, uh, from the leaven of the Pharisees. Lord, that we would not be like them, and also, Lord, that we would not come under uh, this type of teaching, Lord, of what it is that they propose and taught to the people. So, Lord, teach us in greater ways, and Lord, help us to walk in your ways. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, again, here, Jesus is pronouncing these woes on the scribes and Pharisees, and He continually calls them hypocrites during this time. That there is an appearance to them uh, that they are uh, having a kind of reputation amongst the people, but in reality, this reputation is all a facade. And God knows what they're truly like, right? He knows what's really on the inside of them. And there is not a consistency in what they are claiming to be, what they are pretending to be outwardly, and what they truly are on the inside. But rather, they are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness and all sorts of sins. And so he is exposing what is true of them in this passage, right? Showing all of their lawless deeds, showing how blind they are. They are blind men who are using uh, things like what we dealt with last week, them saying that if you swear by the temple, then that is nothing. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, then you're obligated to keep your oath. So making these kinds of loopholes in ways of getting around, keeping their word, keeping the oath that they've committed to God and to man, uh, and using these kinds of, of worthless, weak arguments to support this, playing with words, these kinds of things. And then also swallowing camels while straining out gnats. This is what they are doing, focusing on the minutiae, these meticulous aspects of the law or of obedience while neglecting these crucial parts of what it means to live before God, of love, of justice, of faithfulness, of mercy, completely void of these things, but then convincing themselves and others that they're very righteous men because they tithe mint, dill, and cumin. So they are straining out these gnats while they are ingesting camels whole, right? And this is uh, showing, again, just how absurd they are in their practice of righteousness before God, that they're not really practicing righteousness. They're truly practicing unrighteousness, but then they're calling it righteousness and covering this filth with this veneer of self-made, man-made righteousness and then saying, look how beautiful, look how clean it is, look how wonderful it is. But Jesus is stripping it back and showing what it truly is underneath, right? What it is there on the outside. And so that's what he is uh, showing or what it is on the inside. And we'll pick up in verses 25 and 26 today. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may be clean also. Here, this is showing this inconsistency. There is not continuity in unity between what they are in appearance or what they are on the outside and what they are on the inside. Now, when we're dealing with men, right, when we're dealing with our behaviors, our actions, who we are, right, there is something that is portrayed, something that is seen outwardly about us. And then there are things that are taking place inside of our heart, things that are inside of us that men cannot see. Men can look at our actions. They can hear our words. They can see these sort of things, but no man is able to look into the heart of another. We may have glimpses of what is in the heart of man by what comes out of him, but only God can observe the heart in this way. Well, in terms of who a man is, what he truly is, what is more important, the outward or the inward? What truly defines the man? Well, it is the inward. That component is the more crucial, the more important component when dealing with what defines of man, right? What he uh, consists of in his character, in his standing before God, what he truly is. What is on the inside is more important. And here Jesus uses this example of a cup or a dish, right? Is it more important that the cup be clean on the outside or be clean on the inside? 
what kind of a cup do you want to drink out of? Well, ideally we want to drink of a cup that is clean both on the inside and on the outside. But if a cup is clean on the outside, it has the appearance, you see it there, and it looks to be clean, but then upon closer examination, you look on the inside and it's filthy. And in terms of the usefulness of the cup, well, if you had to choose between a dirty one on the outside or a dirty one on the inside, which one would you prefer to have? Well, obviously you would rather have a dirty cup on the outside than one on the inside because the inside is where the liquid goes. That's where the water goes. And if it's filthy there, you're gonna ingest that into yourself. Well, this is what they are like, right? They are cleaning the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside full of robbery and self-indulgence. Here, they have an appearance outwardly of righteousness through various rituals, through their meticulous keeping of, of finer points of the law, but also these traditions that they have constructed, which have gained sway among the people as being consistent with keeping the law of God, right? These traditions that they have concocted and invented out of their own mind that they pass off as being very faithful, meticulous in keeping of the law of Moses. So they have this kind of outward appearance. We read about that earlier in the chapter. They make their, um, in verse 5, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. They broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. Here, it's in these types of outward shows. Even in the clothing that they are wearing, they are trying to put forward this portrayal of godliness, of righteousness, that they are very sincere and conscientious and faithful in their devotion to God. So this is what they want to communicate, and this is what there is the appearance of on the outside. And that's all that they care about. They care only about the way that they look and how people perceive them. But who is more important, pleasing God or pleasing man? Well, we ought to want to please God. And if we want to please God, then we would be concerned not only with the outward, but primarily with the inner, right? Because it is the heart that is crucial in the sight of God. But they don't care about the heart. They don't care about what's going on on the inside, so long as in the eyes of the people, they have this reputation, this honorable title of being rabbi, of being teacher, of being a wise man, of being a scholar, of being a scribe, right? of being a righteous man. As long as the people have this opinion of them and they gain whatever honors and privileges associated with this world because of those things, then they're satisfied. That's all that they care about, but they don't care about the heart and what God thinks of them because man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. And what is pleasing in the sight of man, honorable in the sight of man, is detestable in the sight of God. Well, they're clean outwardly, but inside, he says, full of robbery and self-indulgence. Robbery and self-indulgence. This is what they are on the inside. Can we be filled with robbery and self-indulgence and have the approval of God, have the favor of God upon our life? Is God pleased? with someone who is committing robbery? Is God pleased with a self-indulgent man, one who is indulging his own desires, his own flesh, who's thinking only about himself? Isn't this contrary to the very commandment of God, the two great commandments to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself? Well, if you're a self-indulgent man, who are you thinking about? You're not thinking about God and you're not thinking about your neighbor. You're just thinking about yourself and indulging your own desires, your own wishes, whatever is best and right for you. So these are the two great commandments and they're not keeping them. They have robbery and they have self-indulgence. And that's why he says, you blind Pharisee, you're blind because you don't even understand these. These are the very basic elementary principles of religion of truth, of what it means to be reconciled to God. How can you have the Bible? How can you read the Bible and think that God only cares about outward appearances? How can anyone looking at the Bible objectively not conclude that God is primarily concerned with the heart? Yet here they are, the ones that are handling the Bible and the primary teachers of the Bible and yet they're not emphasizing the importance of the purity of the heart, 
and of our heart being right before God. That's why he calls them you blind guys, guides. First, clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Right? You need to focus on the inside, on the heart. And if the heart is clean, then what's going to be true of the outside as well? Right? Well, the outward is going to be clean too because the man flows from inside out. What is true on the inside will also be true on the outside. Now, here outwardly, they are also detestable. Right? So he's not saying that outwardly they are very righteous. They have the appearance of righteousness, but it's not true righteousness. But if the heart is dealt with first, which ultimately, primarily, it needs to be reconciled to God. It needs to be regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. There needs to be found true faith and repentance in the heart. Well, if that is found in the heart, then that is also going to manifest itself outwardly in good deeds, in good fruit, that are actually pleasing to God. And that's the way that we want to be commended both to God and to our fellow man, right? As it was with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He had favor with both God and man. They want favor with man in a false way, but we should want favor with God primarily and then with man as God sees fit and as God gives according to His blessing. James chapter 4, James chapter 4 verse 8 James 4 verse 8 says, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The cleansing of the hand and the purifying of the heart. Well, again, here, if you clean the inside, then the outside will be clean as well. If the heart is purified, then what will be true of the hands? The hands will be clean as well. And that's what Jesus is saying to him. Clean the inside and then the outside will be clean as well. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Here, the issue is one and the same as the previous uh, declaration of judgment. Here, he shows what they truly are like like a whitewashed tomb, a tomb which is a place that holds death, right? Dead men's bones. And dead men and their dead bones are considered to be very unclean things, right? It is an unclean thing to have contact with a dead body in this way according to the law of Moses. Well, they are like a tomb that is full of all uncleanliness, full of dead men's bones, but then outwardly, it is whitewashed. It is very beautiful in its appearance. And this is the way many times tombs are, right? The appearance of the tomb is, gives it grandeur. It gives it uh, a spectacle to it so that it looks very wonderful. It's artistic. It's clean. It has uh, maybe some graving in it or some artistic ability that has been applied to the tomb so that it catches your eye and it has the appearance of beauty and wonder and something that draws your attention. But then you have to consider what is in that tomb, right? What is a tomb there for? It is not to be something that draws our attention to the beauty, but ultimately the function of the tomb is a place where dead men's bones are housed. It's full of death. That's what's happening there in the tomb. Decay, death, rottenness. That is there in the tomb. Well, this is what they are like spiritually. They have the appearance, again, outwardly of wonder, of glamour, uh, something that draws the attention of men. They see it and they say, oh, look at how holy they are. Did you see their robes that they wear? Look at the garb that they have. Look at the phylacteries. Look at the tassels that they wear. They, oh, and they have these titles and notice the way that they live. Look how meticulous they are at washing their hands when they come back from the marketplace and they strain out all these gnats so that they don't ingest unclean things. They, oh, they're very concerned about holiness, about righteousness, godliness. This is what they're doing. And they have the attention of men. They have this appearance in the eyes of men. But on the inside, they're full of death. They're full of rottenness. They're completely filled with uncleanliness. 
full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, Jesus says. And what is lawlessness? Sin is lawlessness. Can you be clean when you're filled with sin? Sin is what defiles a man. This is what makes a man unclean. It is sin. It is not swallowing a gnat nor swallowing a camel. It is not eating with unclean hands. It is our sin that defiles us in the sight of God. So what good does it do if you follow these laws religiously, meticulously concerning cleanliness while at the same time being filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness? You're nothing but a hypocrite. This is what you are, and that's what Jesus is exposing them for. We remember that we read Matthew 23, 5. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. They do their deeds to be noticed by men. This is why they're doing it. They want the attention. They want the praise of men. We remember in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 when Jesus is talking about the hypocrites and the way that they pray. They love to do it in outward shows. They want people to hear them. They want people to hear their lengthy prayers and to come and congratulate them and praise them in the way that they do this. When they give, do they do it quietly or do they want to sound a trumpet so that everyone knows how much they are giving? When they fast, they want to look gloomy. They want to draw attention to themselves so that people will come up and ask them, is everything okay? You look look, uh, gloomy today. Are are, are you okay? Well, I'm, I'm fasting. Oh, he's fasting. Well, he's a very godly man, right, to be doing these kinds of things. But Jesus says we shouldn't live like that. We should just look as normal as possible during these times, not announce it, and do it in order to please God, not to gain the acceptance of men, not to be as a show for men. Luke sixteen fifteen, He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your heart, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Highly esteemed among men. And certainly they had that reputation among the men. They were highly esteemed among the people, but they were detestable in the sight of God. Well, on the day of judgment, who do we stand in front of? Do we stand before men or do we stand before God? Well, God is the one that we answer to, not men. So it doesn't matter what men think of us. All that matters is what does God think of us? And if God says that we are detestable, that we're filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness, that we're like dead men's bones, then that's not good. That needs to be rectified before we stand before God, before the day of judgment. And that's what Jesus is exposing them for. And then also they are the teachers. They are the leaders. And so if they're doing this, then what are the people going to do? They're going to follow in their footsteps. They're blind guides, blind men leading blind men. They're going to be just like them. So it's not good for anyone. And this is why the nation itself was in such uh, disrepair during the time when Jesus came. There was such corruption because this was true of the leaders. And as go the leaders, so go the people. And it was very rare for him to find true faith and repentance and godliness there amongst the people of Israel. Verse 29 to 30. 29 to 33. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, How will you escape the sentence of hell? Here, verses 29 to 33 is the culmination of all of their evil, which is ultimately seen in their rejecting of the Word of God. It is unbelief. We'll be dealing with this uh, more thoroughly on Sunday morning, that the root of all sin ultimately is unbelief. It is unbelief, not believing the Word of God. And this is what was true of Israel throughout the course of their time. From Moses until the coming of Christ, they continually went astray from God. They did not believe God's word. And this was no more clearly seen than when God would raise up those extraordinary messengers 
send his prophets to the people to preach his word to them, and then they rejected them and killed them. They hated the prophets. They stoned them. They killed them. They persecuted them over and over again. And this builds until it finally culminates in the sun. This goes back to the parable of the vineyard, where the, the servants of the owner of the vineyard are sent to gather fruit, and they mistreat the messengers. They kill some of them. They throw them out. Then he says, well, I will send them my son. Surely they'll respect my son. But when they see the heir, what do they do to the heir? They kill him as well, and then they want to seize the vineyard for themselves. And then the owner of the vineyard will send and go and kill those people and give it to someone else. Well, this is what it's all building toward in this passage and in the next chapter as well, in chapter 24. Here in verses 29 to 30, they pretend loyalty and devotion to the prophets. Right? This is what they say. They build the tombs of the prophets. They adorn the monuments of the righteous. So they try to show honor toward the prophets, toward the righteous. They build tombs over them in, as a way of showing their honor. Well, we love the prophets, right? And they say, if we would have lived during the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Our fathers behaved very badly. And what they did was wrong and evil, and we would not have done that had we lived in their days. So they pretend to be devoted to the prophets, to love Moses and the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and this is the way many people are. As there is distance created between the righteous man and the people, as time goes on, the people have a very favorable opinion of the righteous man, right, of the man who was the preacher of the word of God. But those who lived during his day hated his guts. They couldn't stand the guy because they're the ones that he's preaching against their sin. And then whenever they try to misinterpret him, he won't let them do it. But as time goes on and the prophet is not there anymore, he's dead and gone, well, then the people can misinterpret, reinterpret what the prophet said so that it doesn't condemn their own sin. Then they can live in their sin while at the same time saying that they believe the prophet. They hold to the prophets. They follow the prophets. And this is what you commonly see, right? Not only with the prophets, the ones who were delivering the word of God, but even with the great theologians that have existed in the history of the church. Many people will say that they adhere to, they ascribe to this guy or that guy. Oh, we love this one or that one. But had they lived during their days, many of them wouldn't have liked them either because they would have confronted their own sin and not allowed them to pick and choose which doctrines, which practices they want to follow and which ones that they want to reject. This is the way it is. In the present, men hate the prophets, but after their death, they love them. Now they can interpret them however they please. This is very clearly seen with both Moses and Aaron. Because when Moses and Aaron died, what did all the people do? They wept for them for many days. But what did they do during the ministry of Moses and Aaron? They wanted to kill them all the time. So that's the way it is, right? They weep when they die, but they want to kill them while they are alive because they're the ones there who are the buffer, the ones that are pushing back against their sins. And once they're gone and out of the way and that pressure is not there, then they will honor them, love them, build their tombs, decorate their monuments, and say these types of things. Had we lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part in their sins. We wouldn't have rejected the prophets. We would have listened to them. We would have sat at Moses' feet. We would have loved Jeremiah. We wouldn't have kidnapped Jeremiah and taken him over to Egypt. We, would have, we wouldn't have thrown him in a pit with mud up to his waist. We would have done that to him. We would have loved him and sat at his feet and been his faithful followers. But it's all a show. They're using the prophets as a platform to promote who? Themselves. They use them to promote themselves. Because everyone wants Isaiah on his side. Everyone wants Jeremiah on his side. Everyone wants Moses on his side. Just as it is today in the Reformed churches, everyone wants Calvin on their side. So they'll pick and choose him however they can or whoever else uh, in the reform movement. They want these people because it gives them credibility. They use them as a platform to promote themselves without adhering to what they truly 
taught and what they truly did. So this is the way people behave. Notice Jesus says in 31, So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You testify yourselves. You yourselves say, had we lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have done this. Well, no, you're just like your fathers. You're testifying. You're condemning yourself. Because, yes, they are your fathers in the true spiritual sense. When you call them fathers, it is true. Not only is it true of them physically that you descended from them, but also it's true of them spiritually because you are just like them. So you actually condemn yourself when you say these things. And the reason Jesus can say this is because Jesus and the prophets preach one and the same message. There is unity between the message of the prophets and between the message of Jesus Christ. Who are the prophets announcing? Who are they teaching the people about? They're teaching them about the Christ. And then when the Christ comes into the world, what do the people do? They want to kill Him. So they killed the prophets for announcing the coming of Christ. And then when the Christ comes, their children want to kill Him. They are one and the same with their fathers. Acts chapter 7. Acts 7. This is what Stephen says. Verses 51 to 54. Acts 7:51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. And when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. The prophets who were persecuted and killed by their fathers, here he focuses on the message. The message that the prophets preached is the announcement of the coming of the righteous one. That's why their fathers persecuted and killed the prophets. And now these, in Stephen's generation, the very ones also that Jesus is addressing here in Matthew chapter 23, because these two, this is one in the same generation, they are the betrayers and murderers of the righteous one. The fathers persecuted the prophets for announcing him, and then you betrayed and murdered him when he came. This is the same as the parable of the vineyard. The messengers were persecuted, stoned, beaten, killed by the fathers. The son was sent, and they did the same thing to him. They are one and the same. And the reason they all did it is because they hated the message. They hated the message that the prophets preached, and they hated the message that Jesus preached, and their message was one in the same. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't say to yourself that we have Abraham as our father because God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. This is what they're doing. They're putting their hope in all the wrong places, in these outward things. Isn't that what Jesus is addressing in chapter 23? They're putting their hope and comfort in those things without there being the true reality, the true spiritual reality. And they're telling them, don't do this. You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And this is what Jesus is preaching as well. So he says, you are just like them. You say that you're not like them, but in reality, you are no different than them. And you're condemning yourself. You're self-condemned people because you're saying that you know what your fathers did was wrong. But now you're repeating the exact same sin as your fathers. So you also are guilty of committing this sin. And then in verse 32, he says, fill it up then. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Fill it up until it overflows. Fill it up to the point that your iniquity is complete so that the judgment of God will come upon this generation. Right? They have come to the point of, they're past the point of no return. Right? This is where they are at in terms of their judgment. And so 
God has determined that He is going to judge this people. And there comes a point in time where that judgment is sure, it is fixed, and it will not be turned back. There are some times when God announces judgment, but the judgment is contingent upon the continued unbelief and unrepentance of the people, such as it was in Jonah chapter 3 and 4. When Jonah preached that in 40 days Nineveh will be overturned, that pronouncement of judgment was conditioned on their non-repentance. But when they repented, what did God do? He relented from the disaster. He did not bring it upon them. And not that God relented in the sense that He didn't know what was going to happen. God knew what was going to happen. He announced the judgment, and the judgment announcement was what was used by God to grant them repentance so that He would be merciful to them. But there are other times when the judgment has come and there's no turning back. And that's where they are at. And that's why Jesus is telling them, fill it up then. Fill up the measure. Keep on sinning until the judgment of God comes upon you. This would be the same as it says in Genesis 15, 16. When Mo, uh, the Lord is talking to Moses, or not to Moses, but to Abraham, and tells him that his descendants will be sojourners, in the, they will be slaves in the land of Egypt, and then they will return back to this land because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Right? They had not filled up the measure of their sin for the judgment of God to come upon them. And it would take another 400 years for them to fill up the measure or to complete their iniquity so that this judgment of God would come upon them for their own ruin and destruction. Well, that's what's happening here, not with the Amorites, but with the people of Israel. With the children of Israel, their sin has reached this boiling point and their iniquity is almost complete, and it is going to be completed in this generation, and then the judgment of God will come upon them. So Jesus is telling them, fill up the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Because everything that has happened from their fathers all the way to the time of Christ, the judgment is going to come upon what generation? It's going to come upon them. Not that the fathers didn't experience judgment. They did experience judgment, but not in the finality of what happened during this time, right? In the previous years, God would judge them, but then He would restore them. But in this time, God's going to judge them and there's not going to be any restoration. They're going to be completely cut off and they will be wiped away. Verse 33, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? How can a man do such things and escape going to hell? How can you kill the prophets and escape going to hell? How can you murder and betray the Son of God and escape going to hell? Right? It's not going to happen. You've, you can't do this and escape the sentence of hell. But rather, they're going to be condemned because of their sins. And again, here he is preaching against... Certainly, the people took part in those sins as well. But here he's preaching against the leadership. Right? It is the scribes and Pharisees, the instigators... The ones who were behind it all, they are the ones that Jesus is making these pronouncements upon. We know that some of the people who participated in this did repent in Acts chapter 2. right? So they did escape the sentence of hell by the grace of God. But here he's saying this to shock them, to show them how much judgment they are under and what is going to happen to them. 34, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Here, when he says, Behold, I am sending you prophets, wise men, and scribes, He's not talking about what he has done in the past, but he's talking about what's going to happen in the future, right? What's going to happen in the immediate future from the time of Christ until the day of the destruction of Jerusalem, which takes place in A.D. 70. So if we understand this to be around A.D. 30 or A.D. 35, then there's about another 35 years until the destruction of Jerusalem. During that period of time, from the ascension of Christ to the destruction of Jerusalem, 
Jesus is going to send, right, Christ, the Lord of the church, will raise up and send to them, to the people of Israel, prophets, wise men, and scribes. These are the apostles, the holy apostles, and where will they begin their ministry? It begins in Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria to the ends of the earth. They will begin there in Jerusalem and in the territory of the land that is the land of Israel. And what will they do to the apostles of Christ? The exact same thing they did to the prophets and the exact same thing that they did to Jesus Christ. He's going to send them prophets, wise men, and scribes. Now, some people, a few people will be turned to the faith, but the majority of them and the scribes and Pharisees, the leadership of the people, they will kill them, crucify them, and scourge them in their synagogues and persecute them from city to city. They're going to do the same thing they've always done. What their fathers did, what they are doing to Christ, they will continue to do to the prophets, wise men, and scribes, the apostles, and those that He raises up during this time and sends to them. They will continue to persecute them because they hate the message that they are preaching. It's the Word of God in their mouth that they despise and they hate and they cannot bear and tolerate the Word of Christ. They will continue to reject them and they will continue to fill up the measure of their father's sins, right? It's not complete yet. It's not even complete with the rejection of Christ. It also will incorporate the rejection of the apostles. So prophets who announce the coming of the righteous one, then the righteous one, and then the apostles who proclaim the coming of the righteous one, they're going to, all of that guilt and sin is going to come upon this one generation. And that will be manifested in their sight in AD 70, when Jerusalem is going to be completely annihilated and destroyed, and the people of Israel will be dispersed, and they will no longer have a nation. It will be taken away from them. Their temple is going to be completely destroyed, and it hasn't been rebuilt since. Right? That's how thorough and utter this destruction. In all of the blessings that God had given to Israel, He's going to take all of that stuff away from them. All of their outward blessings in terms of their worship, the temple, the sacrifice, they, they can't do those things anymore. All of it has been ripped away from them because of their sin. And that sin is rejection of the Word of God seen in their persecution of the prophets, the coming of the righteous one, and the holy apostles that were sent to them. And all of the guilt is going to come upon this generation. The guilt from Abel, right? All the guilt shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So all of the guilt of all of this sin is coming down upon this generation. Abel was the first martyr in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 4. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, is considered to be, in terms of the written Word of God in the Old Testament, the last recorded prophet who was murdered in the Old Testament, in terms of chronology, was Zechariah. So from Abel, the beginning of the Old Testament, to Zechariah, the end of the Old Testament, and then all the things that happened in between, and then everything that happened from that time onward, to what they do to Christ, to what they do to His apostles. All of that guilt and blood is coming down upon this one generation. And they're going to face it. And it's going to be horrible for them. Right? Which is what Jesus will turn to in chapter 24 in terms of His own disciples. He's going to tell them, when you see these things happening, you need to flee. Don't stay in Jerusalem and don't think that it's going to be preserved and that you will escape. When you see these things happening, you need to run as fast as you can and get away from there. Otherwise, you're going to be swept away in the judgment as well. But this is how horrible, and it was a horrible ordeal. What happened to the Jews in AD 70 was something that none of us would, no one would want to experience. How horrible the judgment was that God brought upon them because of their sin. Verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. 
Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here, this final uh, section in 23 is a lament. Uh, uh, Jesus crying out, mourning, showing his compassion, though the people are so hard-hearted. He's lamenting over the sin that is seen there in the nation and in the people of Israel and what's going to happen to them because they are his own people, right? This is the same as the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9. My heart's desire and prayer to God of them is that they may be saved. Well, that's actually chapter, uh, chapter 10. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. His heart's desire and prayer was that they would be saved. That was the Apostle Paul. Well, because they are his brothers, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. And don't we typically, we love our kinsmen? We, they are, in a sense, they are our brothers. Well, these are his brothers. These are his people. And yet he's seeing what's going to happen to them because of this. But Jesus isn't just some cold-hearted, calculated man who has no care or concern for his fellow man or for his own countrymen. When he sees what is happening, he's lamenting over it. He's crying out because of what he knows is going to come upon these people and how horrible and dreadful it truly will be. Here he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the name itself, the name of the city is City of Peace. City of Peace. Yet this City of Peace will have no peace because who were the only people in Jerusalem to not be welcome there? The prophets, right? The prophets and the ones sent to her by God. This should be the one city on earth where a prophet is welcome, where a prophet is honored, right? Where a prophet receives the honor that he is due on earth. And yet, that wasn't the case in the city of peace because they had no peace with God. They did not have peace with God. Therefore, they did not have peace with the prophets of God. They hated the messengers of God. City of peace, yet the very ones that kill prophets stone those who are sent to them. They had no peace with God and they had no peace with God's messengers. But rather, they were the murderers of the prophets of God. They stoned them, killed them, sent to her. And who sent them to them? God did. And why did God do this, according to 2 Chronicles 36? Because He had compassion on His people. He had compassion on them. It was His love and mercy, His compassion for them, that motivates Him to send the prophets to them. And when the prophets come to them, Yes, they are preaching judgment, but what else are they preaching? They're preaching repentance. They're preaching reconciliation. They're preaching how you can have your sins forgiven. The message is not a message that is just doom and gloom, but it is filled with this mercy, the grace of God, the peace of God, the love of God, how your sins can be wiped away. Doesn't Isaiah say this? Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. He's preaching there repentance and salvation. Good news, right? This is good news, the gospel of peace. This is what they are preaching. And God sends them there to them to preach this message of salvation to the people. God did this for their benefit, and yet they rejected it. They hated it. They wanted nothing to do with it. Right? Such a contradiction in what Jerusalem portrayed itself to be outwardly and what it truly was inwardly. Isn't this what's true of the people as well? Sure. Outwardly, they had all of these benefits. The true temple of God was there. The symbols that God had Himself created and given to men to instruct them in the worship of God, all of those things were there in Jerusalem. And they were preserved there in their true form, in a sense, in an outward way. In the construction of the temple, in the sacrifices, in the priesthood, the, anywhere in the, in the world where you should find the Bible, the Word of God, and be able to have access, it should be Jerusalem. This is where all of these things should be. Again, the one place on earth 
where the prophet should be honored and received, and yet it is the exact opposite. John chapter 16, verse 2. John 16, verse 2. There it says, They will make you outcasts from the synagogues, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. This is how blinded they are. They think they're doing service to God by killing His Son and killing His prophets and His apostles. This is how corrupted they truly are. Now Jesus also says, How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Now here, this is a passage that is often used by free willers to support free will theology. That God wants people to be saved. He wants to gather them. But because men are unwilling, they won't use their free will to believe in Christ then God is unable to gather them the way that He wants. So God wants all men to be saved, but men, because they don't use their free will, then it doesn't happen. Well, we have to, again, understand what's happening, who is speaking, right? In what context is Jesus saying these things? Who is Christ and who He is as He is speaking these truths, right? Jesus is speaking these things, showing His compassion, His love, right, for His fellow man, right, for His own countrymen. And Jesus is both fully God and He's also fully man. And as the man, Christ Jesus, when He sees His own people and He sees what's happening, He has great compassion for them. But it does not subvert or overthrow the will of God, the sovereign will of God by which God ordains all things. Even the hardening of Israel, even the judgment and destruction of Israel, all of these things have been ordained by God from before the foundation of the world. And ultimately they rest on God's predetermined will that God brings about. And though all things advance according to the will of God, yet as we see and experience these things in our own life, we respond with different emotions, right? We respond in these different ways. And Jesus is a man with a nature like ours. And when he sees the hard-heartedness of the people of Israel and he sees and understands the judgment that is coming upon them, he is moved with compassion, with sorrow. He's mourning, lamenting over what is going to come upon them. And also, when God sends his prophets, when he sends his messengers to the people, God is sending to them in a way, coming to them with invitations, with overtures, of His grace and mercy. God isn't coming to them saying, you know, I hate all of you and I can't wait to throw all of you into hell. But rather He's coming to them and presenting Himself as a kind, compassionate Father. One who is tender and full of mercy. One who is like a hen wanting to gather chicks under its wings. So He is coming to them in this way, which only makes their sin all the more great. Because this is the way that God comes to them. And though God comes with so many promises of goodness, of mercy, of salvation, of blessing, yet they don't want anything to do with it. And why do they not want anything to do with it? Because they have to give up their sin. If they're going to partake, if they're going to come under the wings of God, they have to give up their sin. So though God comes to them in this way, and though the prophets are preaching to them a message of reconciliation, and who would turn away from that? Right? Who would reject the good news? It's such good news. Well, they would reject it because in order to have the blessing of that good news, they have to give up their sin. And they cannot live without their sin. So it actually heightens and makes their sin even greater. So Jesus is saying this as a man, as he's considering and thinking about what will happen to Israel, what will happen to Jerusalem, to his own people. He is moved with compassion. And he did preach to them, and he preached to them in love. His love 
and his compassion for the people is what was motivating him to preach to them the very words of life. And the message he was preaching to them was a message of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, of eternal life. Right? What's so offensive about these things? Right? What is so appalling? He's not coming to them like a vulture. He's coming like a hen. What is so threatening about this? That you run away from it as if it's the most awful thing in the world. So they can't say that it's the way that God presented the message. They can't say it's the way that it was communicated. None of those things are true because he came... What, what can be more gentle than a hen wanting to gather her chicks under her wings? When the hen does that... Actually, we have quail right now that our hens are gathering under their wings. Have you ever seen the way that they do that with their chicks? They're not violent with them, but they're very gentle. They're very tender. They're very compassionate and caring in the way that they do that. This is how God presents Himself to the people. And yet, though God comes in this way to them through His prophets and through His Christ and through His apostles, they wanted nothing to do with it. They were unwilling to come under the tender, loving, caring compassion of God. So since they do not want the compassion of God, then what will they get? They will get the wrath of God. Again, now, none of this subverts or overthrows the will of God. God's purpose of election, God's ordaining, the hardening of the heart. Of course, God does all of that according to the Word of God. But also, we should not deny the compassion of God, the love of God, and the way that God presents Himself to sinners in this compassionate, tender way, nor should we be lacking in this compassion and tenderness in the way that we deal with our fellow man either. It's not, we should not be ashamed to be compassionate people, to be tender people, to have care and concern for our fellow man, especially when there's hardness of heart in them, right? To such a magnitude as will bring about the judgment and wrath of God. So here, they... Um, they, they will forsake God. Now, let's look at Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5, as a cross-reference to, to this. This is similar to what the Apostle Paul is doing. Did the Apostle Paul believe in election? Did he believe in predestination? Did he believe that God hardens whomever he wills and he has compassion on whomever he wills? Of course he does. He believes all of those truths. But does that mean he was a cold-hearted, calculated man? who cared nothing about his fellow man. No, of course not. Those things aren't, aren't contradictions. Romans 9, 1-5, I am telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my, kins, my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and the worship and the promises. To them belong the fathers, and from them is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forevermore. Amen. He has great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart. And he wishes that he could be accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers, according to the flesh. Now he knows that he can't do that, but this is him conveying his love and his desire for their reconciliation to God, right? He doesn't want them to go to hell. He wants them to be saved, right? And to come to the knowledge of the truth, his compassion for his people. Yet his compassion does not lead him to deny God's will and God's purpose. That's chapter 9, verses 14 to 24. What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He has compassion on Moses and he hardens Pharaoh. And does he do anyone any wrong? No. And that hardening and mercy was predetermined by God. 
But does that mean that when God sent Moses to Pharaoh and was preaching repentance to Pharaoh, that uh, Pharaoh has no obligation to believe that? That God can't hold him accountable for that? Of course not. Of course not. He should believe it. He should listen. And that was an act of compassion for God to send Moses to Pharaoh to preach reconciliation to him. And it's Pharaoh's own fault for not believing. And that's what he says here when he says, you were unwilling. Right? The address is, again, to the scribes and Pharisees. They were unwilling to hear and receive Christ. And because they were unwilling, they also kept people from coming to Christ. Remember what he said in chapter 23? You yourself don't enter, nor do you allow others who are going in to enter. You shut the kingdom of God in people's faces. You should be the one pointing people to Christ. But you're unwilling to come to me, and you're unwilling that others would come to me for their own salvation. Right? We know from reading the Gospels, the people were more favorable toward Christ than the leadership. And they were willing to listen to Him. And yet the leaders were prohibiting them from coming to... They were putting many stumbling blocks in the way of the people to keep them from coming to Christ. In John chapter 9, we see there that they were threatening the people. John 9, 22 to 23. This was before... His death. John 9, 22. This is the parents of the blind man that was healed by Christ. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Here, the Jews, and this, when it says the Jews, now the parents were Jews. It means the Jewish leadership. Those who were in authority and leadership, they were poisoning the minds of the people against Christ and putting up grave stumbling blocks, obstacles to keep the people from coming to Christ. They should have been like John the Baptist, making straight the way of the Lord, tearing down obstacles to prevent people from coming to Christ, but they're raising them up. These are the very teachers of the Bible. This is what they are doing. They are unwilling to themselves enter in, and they are unwilling that the people would enter in. And unfortunately, they hold great sway among the people. They are using their influence to force them to do this. In this, right, in this case, throwing them out of the synagogue. And these parents of the blind man are afraid to say anything about Christ and to defend their own son because of re the repercussions that will come from the Jewish leadership. Right. Right? And it's prohibiting people from entering in in this way. Verse 38. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Your house, your house being, I would take it to be the temple. Your house is being left to you desolate. It could be the temple. It could be the people themselves because the people of Israel are in a sense the household of God. The temple also in their midst is considered to be the house of God. But here, whose house is it? It's not God's house, it's your house. Right. Your house. God doesn't have anything to do with it. Though God is the one who instituted it, God is the one through Moses who gave the instructions for it, to the way it is supposed to be built. All of the rituals associated with it, God is the one who established those things. Yet this house is desolate. God is going to make it a desolation because it is not His house. This temple in this city, which should be the place where Christ is received the most, honored the most, is the very place where He will be put to death. And the temple being the center of the power of the leadership of the nation of Israel. So their house will be left to them desolate. And that's what in 24, 1-2, this is what Jesus is talking about. Jesus came out from the temple, was going away, when His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to Him, He said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. What the temple is truly, spiritually, is what it will be physically. Right? It is a complete, it is useless. 
because it's not performing the function that it's supposed to perform. It is desolate of true faith, of true godliness, of true righteousness. So what will God do? What is true of it inwardly and spiritually will be true of it outwardly. It will be completely demolished, and that's what will happen. And then he finishes by saying, For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is uh, hinting at or uh, his ascension. He is, he's been among them for three years. This is the time of visitation. But he's about to depart from them because he's going to be crucified and then resurrected and then he will ascend to God. And then they will not see their Messiah again until his second coming. When they say, when all men will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because when Christ returns again, he's coming in the name of the Lord. And what will all men have to do at that time? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They will have to admit, and even the unbelieving Jews will have to admit, that Jesus is the Christ. And blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And if we don't want to undergo the same judgment as them, that's what we need to confess in this life. Blessed is He who has come in the name of the Lord and who is coming again in the name of the Lord, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the only way of salvation. And that's what's going to happen to them. So their long-awaited Messiah that they were looking for and expecting came to them. They did not know the day of His visitation. And now they will not see Him again until He returns the second time. Visibly, physically, and then they will see Him. And then they will look upon Him whom they have pierced in this way.